Welcome to the House Church Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. If you would like to know more about the House Church, please visit our website at welcometothehouse.com or download the House app. Well, it's always a pleasure to connect with Stephen and Katie. We love the family. We've known them for years. It's a pleasure to be here at the house. Um, and as we do get ready for the 4th of July, um, there are some things I think it's worth pointing out. Most Americans don't recognize how special America is. I, I think one of the problems is when you grow up in an area, you think that's normal and you don't always recognize. Like if you grew up in a really solid home, mom and dad, siblings, like you think that's normal and you don't realize like, no. Like, actually, brokenness is more normal than whole, okay? That's actually more normal, but this is where in America, sometimes we've enjoyed so many blessings and benefits, we think it's normal. It's not normal as a nation to enjoy the blessings and benefits. In fact, this summer, 4th of July, just a couple days from now, we're celebrating 243 years as a nation. Now, why that's also really impressive is because the average length of the Constitution for the rest of the world, the world on average, 17 years they go under a constitution. We have 232 years, 243 been a nation, 232 have had the constitution, but we also are a very creative people. Uh, every year we come up with more inventions, more patents, technology, medical cures. We only have 4% of the world's population, but we outproduce 96% of the rest of the world combined every year. Guys, with, we think this is just normal. It's not normal right? Talk to them when they get back from Belize, right? Like, this is not normal, but it's our normal, and so we take it for granted sometimes, right? Even the idea of prosperity as Americans, we are very blessed financially. Now, we have poor people in America, and we want to help and care for those people, but Jesus said you will always have poor, so poverty is not always the best indicator when you look at even wealth. What's interesting is the World Poverty Center, the World Poverty Bank, they track poverty around the world. Half of the world lives on less than $2 a day. One quarter of the world, 1.9 billion people live on less than a dollar and a quarter a day. Which means for the majority of the world, the main health problems and concern they have is actually malnutrition. Right? That's the main problem the rest of the world deals with. In America, if you're in poverty, malnutrition is not the main problem in America. Right? If you've seen any of the studies, right, what's the number one health concern for people in poverty in America? It, right, which actually they say comes from having too much saturated fat in your food, which means you ate too much McDonald's. <laughs> right? That, that's what that means. Okay? I would much rather live in a place where the problem is you have too much of something than you have nothing at all. And this is where sometimes we forget the blessings and benefit of America. In fact, even today people say, wait a second, we can't celebrate America because the founding fathers were bad. Now, most of us don't even know who the founding fathers were, much less do we know if they're bad or not. But let me just give you an idea of this notion, okay? Before the founding fathers, there was another book, the Bible. Okay, it's a good one. If you haven't read it, check it out. Okay, in the Bible, you have the story of King David. Okay, now... There's two main things we know about King David. He was an amazing worshiper because he wrote the majority of Psalms. He also was a warrior. If you remember when he was chosen to go fight Goliath, he told King Saul, I've already killed a lion. I've already killed a bear. This giant will be no problem for me, right? David was a warrior his whole life. He was a worshiper his whole life. Well, those are some good things in David's life. But the Bible doesn't just tell us the good parts of David. It tells the whole story, okay? If you look at David as a father, arguably he was like the worst father ever. Like if there was a competition, he's up at the top. Okay, that's what we're saying. 
okay? If you don't know, so, so Adonijah was a son who actually tried to throw David, his father, off the throne and take the throne, and the Bible says that David never once corrected him. Now, I'm only like four months into this father thing, but I'm pretty sure at some point you have to tell your child they're wrong on something, right? Like, I don't know yet, I'm learning, but like, I feel like that's kind of fatherly. Well, he also has Amnon. Amnon falls in love with his sister. Sister's like, that's weird. He's like, I don't care. He actually rapes her. Absalom finds out, goes and kills Amnon. David never says anything to anybody. Right, like on some level, you ought to be a father at some point, right? Like, hey, we don't do that, that's wrong. Like on some level, <laughs> right? But what happens is the Bible tells us the story of David. And, and part of the story of David is bad. And then you also have more of the story of David because at the time when kings go to war, right? He didn't go to war. He stayed and he saw a woman of unusual beauty, Bathsheba. And he's like, I think I like her. I want to get to know her. And they know each other biblically. And she gets pregnant, <laughs> right? And... He says, okay, this is not a good look for me because she's got a husband. What can I do? I know I'll get the husband to come back and I will get the husband, I will get the husband to, to come back. I'll get him drunk and, and I'll send him home. I mean, drunk people have sex all the time. It's no problem. Let's just get drunk and we'll solve the problem, right? But he doesn't go home to his wife. And so David says, then we need to get rid of this guy. So he tells his, his captain, send him to the place where the fighting is the fiercest. When he's at the front, pull all the troops back, leave him by himself, surrounded by the enemy, so they will kill him, okay? David is a murderer, he's an adulterer, he's the worst father, but here's the point. The Bible tells us the whole story of David. The Bible tells us what is the good, the bad, and the ugly, and here's what's significant. The bad and the ugly do not eliminate the good. Just because there is bad and ugly moments does not mean there are not good moments. The problem is, even in American history, we focus so much on bad and ugly moments that we don't recognize the good and we think we can't even celebrate good because there's bad and ugly. That's just not the way the world works. It's not the way God's kingdom works and it's not the way America worked either. But this is when we want to tell the whole story. So if we said, okay, so what's more of the story? What, what are things maybe we don't know? When you look at America, it's interesting. Other nations used to say this about America and we used to say this about ourselves is that the Bible is what shaped our nation. Okay, other leaders, other kings, president said the Bible's what shaped our nation. Today, most of us would have a hard time. I'm going to father, hey, keep it down while dad's talking. Okay, first father moment. There we go. Okay. That might not have been good. I don't know. Somebody help me later. Okay. All right. <laughs> Stephen has never been afraid to correct me, so it's, that's very normal. So... If we talked about the Bible influencing America, right, most people wouldn't know what to say the Bible influenced. But let me just give you an easy example. If you take even our English language, just our vocabulary, our vernacular, there are 257 idioms that come directly from the Bible that are part of our language. Now, I'm not going to show you all 257 because that's too many, but I'm going to show you some. And I just want you to think, have you ever heard this or recognized this before? And different generations might recognize different ones. So by the skin of your teeth, well, here's my two cents. A leopard can't change his spots. There's nothing new under the sun. These are signs of the time. Well, that's a thorn in the flesh from the cradle to the grave, handwriting on the wall. That's a fly in the ointment. Now, 
a little more modern, maybe eye for an eye. Well, house divided against itself can't stand. You've got to fight the good fight. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. There's no rest for the wicked. Let there be light. My cup runneth over. Go the extra mile. The promised land. Now, let me just focus on the promised land for a second. I have not heard anybody quote the Bible more than ESPN <laughs> when it comes to this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How long have they been talking? So, so LeBron goes to LA, he's with the Lakers. Can he take them to the promised land? Guys, I'm talking about ESPN quotes the Bible so much. And I don't think it's because they're like, how can we spiritually encourage our viewers today? Like, <laughs> no. This is just how the Bible has shaped even our language, right? And, and think about it. So, so college football season coming up. How often do we hear a David versus Goliath matchup, right? Like, like this is very common vernacular. And we don't even think about quoting the Bible. We're just using expressions, but it's how the Bible has shaped our nation. In fact, if you just think about it when you go in public, listen to conversations. The next time you're checking out at Walmart, the next time you're at, at Tractor Supply, the next time, right, wherever you're going, getting groceries, just listen to people online. And then you ought to notice when someone says something. And if you know it's from the Bible, like this could be the awkward witnessing moment you've been waiting for, right? You grow up like, hey, did you know you just quoted the Bible? And it's really weird, but maybe. We'll try. So, did you know you quoted the Bible? And they're like, no, I didn't. You're like, no, really, you just quoted the Bible. But this is where you have to be careful because they might then turn around and say, okay, well, what did I quote? And at that point, it's probably helpful if you actually know what they quoted. So maybe do a little research, find the idioms. But here's the point, right? We don't recognize how the Bible has shaped our nation, but this is what used to be well-known. In fact, one of the founding fathers was John Quincy Adams. He was the son of John Adams. He grew up during the Revolution. He knew all the founding fathers, but he talked about the Bible. Here's what he said about the Bible. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. Think for a second, right? He says, guys, it's embarrassing not to know the Bible, but, but he also said it's shameful, right? It's, it's, it's not impressive to know the Bible. It's shameful not to know it. I would actually disagree on surface level, yeah. right? Like if somebody said, I can quote the book of James, I would be like, you're amazing. You quote the book of James. That's like, that's impressive. Why would we say that's not impressive? Here's why we would say it's not impressive. Because if I said, Adam, it's not a trick question. It's four. Okay. What's two plus two, right? It's four. We're helping him. I'm embarrassing, right? Here's the deal. If somebody didn't know two plus two was four, it would be embarrassing for them not to know what should be obvious to everybody. Right? When he says it's not impressive to know the Bible, why? It's not impressive for you to know what should be obvious to everybody. But it's embarrassing for you not to know what should be obvious. This is the climate and culture of early America. In fact, the book everybody learned to read from, by and large, was the Bible, right? So even if you didn't believe in Jesus, you still knew what the Bible was. You were familiar with the Bible. This is early America. This is the influence of the Bible. And, and this is what we used to understand. In fact, President Teddy Roosevelt talked about how the Bible shaped America. And he said that the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our civic and social life, it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachings were removed. Now imagine for a second, he says... American life has been so shaped by the Bible. If you remove the Bible, you wouldn't recognize America. So what is the Bible shaped in America? Because today we wouldn't recognize that. But we don't recognize the fact that the reason we have a Republican form of government is the Bible. The reason we have the free market system is because of the Bible. The reason we started public schools is because of the Bible. The reason we have religious liberty and the rights of conscience is the Bible. If we start going down the list of what we have because of the Bible, if we removed that, America would not look the same. 
If we didn't have freedom, right, w- 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 without the market, abundance, prosperity, like it would look so different. This is what he says. In fact, even another president, FDR, talked about how the Bible had so shaped America. He said, in the formative days of the republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised upon the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident. He means it's obvious. It's obvious the Bible shaped the founding fathers. He continued, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible is occupied in shaping the advances of the republic. To say you can't read a history book and not see how the Bible shaped America? Okay, pause. I've read a lot of history books, and I have not read a modern book, and like, oh, that's how the Bible, like, no. You can read almost any history book today and not see how the Bible shaped America. So what was it we were doing 80 years ago that we don't know today? Right, because he was back in the 1940s. It's not that long ago that FDR was here. So what did we used to know back then we don't know today? Well, let me give you an easy example, okay? Benjamin Franklin was considered the least religious founding father. And, and least religious, I would think, is true, but least is a comparative term, right? Like, even of all of the elders and the staff of this church, one of them is the least religious. Like, you don't need to say who, right? Devin's like, it's him, right? Like, no, okay? Somebody's the least religious, but, but Benjamin Franklin, okay, I, I, I would agree. I, I don't think he was a Christian ever in his whole life. He did believe in God, though, and, and here's how I know it. Constitutional Convention, when we had 13 states coming together to try to write the Constitution, every state sent their delegation. Every delegation had their own plan. New York had a plan. New Jersey had a plan. Virginia had a plan. North Carolina had a plan. And nobody liked anybody else's plan. So for the first several weeks, all they did was argue. And it got so bad, the delegates from Virginia got up to leave. George Washington chased it, it, it was reported he chased down the delegates from Virginia, said, you can't leave. George Mason was in a carriage. George Washington walked alongside the carriage, said, George, we just fought a war to be a free nation. We can't give up on it now. We have to make it work. And George Mason tells him, I'll come back, but I think we're wasting our time. We've already been here a month. We've gotten nothing done, no progress. I don't think it's going to work because I, I respect you. I will come back for you. He goes back. Well, when, when they reassemble, at this point, Benjamin Franklin, who's the oldest guy at the convention, he stands up and he gave the longest speech he gave during the whole convention. It was on June 28, 1787. And, and he said this is what he thought they should do to help bring resolution. And let me just read you part of what he said. This is what he's telling the whole convention. In this situation, this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it and present it to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? Okay, meaning why haven't we prayed and asked God for help? Good question. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. The room they're in is Independence Hall. That was the same place they did the Declaration. They're now back for the Constitution. He says, guys, remember when we were here a couple years ago? We prayed every single day, and what happened? He said, our prayers were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire could rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. Okay. 
understanding, right? If we don't get God's help, we're not going to survive. We won't last. We won't exist. And so he concludes, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Okay, let me point out, it's not bad when you have the least religious person challenging everybody else to be more religious, <laughs> right? You guys should pray. Like, you're going to need some help on this one, okay? That's not bad. Now, let me also point out, knowing that we are in church, and, and generally, right, we would say we're believers, and as people who are believers, we base our life on the Word of God, is what we should do. Well, let me ask you a Bible question. I read 14 sentences of his speech. In those 14 sentences, how many Bible verses did he quote or reference? Now, you don't have to say it out loud, because if you say it out loud and you're wrong, it'd be embarrassing. If you're right, it's full of pride, and that's a problem. So just internalize right? But in 14 sentences, he actually quoted 14 verses. Now, let me throw this out again. This is the least religious founding father, okay? If you can't find all 14 verses he quoted, is it possible that the least religious founding father knows the Bible better than most Christians today? This is an interesting thought, right? Because he got up to give a speech. He didn't have all this written down. He was just talking. But the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It cannot come out of you if you have not put it in you. Right? So something was in him to come out of him. And it was the Bible. Again, this is the influence of the Bible in early America. Well, after Franklin said, we need to pray and get God's help, George Washington identified in his journal, he says, we took three days off. For three days, we went to church. The church they went to was the church of the Reverend William Rogers. And William Rogers led them in prayer, spiritual orations. They, they fasted. They heard sermons. At the end of which, they came back and they reconvened. When they reconvened, one of the delegates, Jonathan Dayton, he wrote that the entire atmosphere changed after those three days. He said where there had been a spirit of division, there was now a spirit of unity and peace. We were able to get along, and so over the next several weeks, they wrote what has become the most successful governing document in the history of the world. Okay, nothing has lasted longer, and it's interesting, today a lot of people say, well, the Constitution is a secular document. It's only secular if you've never read the Constitution and you don't know the Bible. Okay, if you read the Constitution and you know the Bible, you will see phrases in the Constitution go, wait a second, that sounds like Leviticus. Well, that one sounded like Deuteronomy. There are literally things in Scripture or in the Constitution that came from Scripture. In fact, even founding fathers, things like the separation of powers, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington, all three wrote, the reason we separated powers was, and then they quoted Jeremiah 17, 9. Right? They even explained this is where the ideas came from. So much so did we know the Bible shaped America that even people like President Andrew Jackson, who certainly was not a religious president, actually was a very bad guy, nonetheless, even Andrew Jackson understood, he says, the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. Why has America enjoyed more prosperity, more blessings, more freedom, more abundance? Well, Jesus talked about what you build on, right? You can build on the rock and it'll hold and last really well. In America, it's not that we had perfect people building, it's that they built on the right foundation. Right? And this is what's unique about our nation. Now, if we back up and say, okay, the Declaration, a lot of people today argue the Founding Fathers didn't really believe in God. They didn't believe in Scripture. So why would they have done that? Well, this is what's interesting. If you go back to some of their writings, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Wilson, Benjamin Rush, all five of them wrote that the reason we did what we did in the Declaration was actually based on John Locke's work, the two treatises of government. Richard Henry Lee says they actually just copied the Declaration from what John Locke had done. Now, 
important you understand John Locke to know why this matters. John Locke was a theologian. He was actually a guy over in England at the time. And there was a bishop in England who wrote this huge paper in favor of the divine right of kings. And this bishop said that if you read the Bible, Adam was God's first king. And then Adam's sons were kings. And he goes through and explains how everybody in the Bible was a king, apparently. And God loves kings. You should honor the king and you should serve our king. Well, well John Locke then writes the two treatises of government and he attacks the bishop. He says, Bishop, that was the worst exegesis I've ever seen in my whole life. Right? Like, that's not what the Bible says at all. So he starts in Genesis. He said, Adam was a son of God and he was under only God and there was no king. His individual liberty, individual responsibility was from God to him. But he goes through and explains individual liberty, explains private property. It's not the divine right of kings. Well, in this two treatises of government, he quotes the Bible more than 1,500 times, explaining it in regards to government. This is significant because the founding father said our ideas for the declaration came from a theologian's work explaining the Bible in personal government. Now, that's a declaration. Okay, people say, now, wait a second. Constitution, it's secular. They don't acknowledge God. Well, there was a group of professors who said, we want to know what really influenced the founding fathers the most. And so professors from Houston Baptist University, from LSU, they got together, and I'm not defending those universities. They're dumb. We beat them all the time, okay? But (laughs) these professors said, we want to study the founding fathers. They went through 15,000 of their writings, and every time they they cited, they referenced a source, they tracked it back to its original finding or original documentation. They put their work together in a book called The Origins of American Constitutionalism. And what they found was the number one cited individual by the founding fathers was Charles Montesquieu. 8.3% of all the quotes came from Montesquieu. Second place was William Blackstone, 7.9%. Third place was John Locke. Now, John Locke was the most quoted during the American Revolution, but they looked over like a 50-year period. So big picture, he was only third. Well, that's first, second, and third individuals. Those aren't the top sources. The top source, 34% of all the quotes they found from the founding fathers came from the Bible. Okay? Again, this is significant because we're talking about where do the ideas come from, what influenced the founding fathers, and this is where you see the Bible is what shaped so much of our nation. The Bible literally impacted what we did. In fact, Dr. Benjamin Rush signed the Declaration, helped ratify the Constitution. He served under the first three presidents. He explained the way the Bible should be read. He said the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in its present state than any other book in the world. What does that mean? It means the Bible is the best self-help book you will ever read. Okay? Let me give you the idea. Right? You want to have a good relationship with your spouse? Here's what you should do. Read the Bible and do what it says. Okay? You want to be good at raising kids? Right? Have a good family? Here's what you should do. Read the Bible and do what it says. Right? I want to be a good employee. Here's what you should do. Read the Bible. And, right, are, are you with me? Like, this is what he says. This is the best self-help book in the world because it's practical. So often we think of the Bible as spiritual and we lose some of the very practical application of what it was written for. This is what's interesting in early America. They used to read the Bible differently than a lot of modern Christians read it today. For example, if you go back to a guy like Matthew Murray, Matthew Murray was a guy who actually discovered that there were currents in the ocean. He was known as the father of oceanography. Now, he discovered currents in the ocean back in the 1800s. Okay? Now, I want you to think for a second. 1800s. Finding Nemo has not come out yet. Right? We don't know about the East Australian currents. Okay? 
We, we don't have GPS. We don't have satellites. So, so how did he know? Well, he actually had broken his leg. He was a ship captain. Broke his leg. He was at home recovering. He was laying in bed. While he was laying in bed, he had his daughter come read the Bible to him. And she read from Psalms 8.8, and he heard it and said, whoa, wait a second. Read that to me again. So she read it again. He said, read it again. He made her read it over and over. And now I'm going to read Psalms 8.8 to you, and I want you to listen to it like you are a ship captain in the 1800s. And think about what would stand out to you hearing this. Here's what Psalms 8.8 says. Thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. He heard, wait a second. Read that again. Because he said, when I heard there were paths in the sea, I thought I heard it wrong. So I wanted her to read it again. But she kept reading it the same way. And I thought, well, if the Bible says there's paths in the sea... There must be paths in the sea. When his leg recovered, he spent the rest of his life documenting all of the currents, the paths of the sea. Okay, guys, let me also point out, when King David wrote this, King David didn't know there were paths in the sea. (laughs) Right? This is why we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Because God revealed truth to people who didn't even know what they were saying was true, right? But this is what the Bible does. In fact, his daughter kept reading while his leg was recovering, and, and she got to Ecclesiastes 1.6. And here's what that says. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. He heard circuit, thought, wait a second, if there's a circuit, that seems like to indicate there might be a pattern. He said, I wonder if there's a pattern to, to the wind, to the atmosphere. He begins studying and discovering He's the one that found out there were actually jet streams in the wind. He documented that in the 1800s, okay? He became known as the father of naval meteorology. All of this happened because he read the Bible and believed what it said was probably true. This is what's interesting. So often we read the Bible because we want a spiritual feel. No, 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 no. The Bible is practical. What should you do? Read it and do what it says. This is what we discovered historically. In fact, even back in the founding era, you have people like Alexander Hamilton. He was explaining how did we come up with the ideas for the Constitution? How did we do this? How do we pull this off? He actually quotes Exodus in explaining why we have a written Constitution. James Madison says the same thing, and I'm going to give you both their quotes, but I'm going to give you the biblical context because it will make their quotes make more sense. So if you go back in the Bible, go back to the time, at the, the end of Genesis, you remember there was Joseph, he's second only to Pharaoh, right? That You have the Israelites, his, his family, they move in. Well, then it picks up in Exodus. Okay, when they're in Exodus, now they are slaves in Egypt. Okay, and this is when God sends the deliverer, and, and, and so they're finally going to have freedom. And this is when you have the ten plagues that happen. What's interesting about this, and I don't know if you've ever paid attention when you read it, the first two plagues, the blood and the frogs, when Moses did it, Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. They were like, we know magic tricks too. We can make frogs appear. That ain't nothing, right? However, when it came to lice, they said, oh, this was tough, right? Like, okay, I'm not sure we can pull this one off. In fact, they go to Pharaoh and they told him, this is different. This is something beyond us. Let me just read you what the Bible says about this. So Exodus 8, it says, all the dust of the earth became lice throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth the lice. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Okay, now, they recognize this is beyond us, right? This is something more than us. This has to be the finger of God. Well, go forward. When, when 
this is now Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments are coming. When God shows up, it tells us, the Bible tells us that God came down and with his finger, he wrote the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's exactly what the Bible says. Exodus 31, when God had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets, testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So this was something God did. Man could not do on his own. Man couldn't fabricate. This came from God. Okay, you see this, by the way, throughout the Bible, multiple places. Daniel 5, this is when Nebuchadnezzar, they're having their drunk party, right? The hand of God shows up, writes on the wall, meaning, meaning, technically, you farsen. This is when they recognize, okay, this is something significant. This is not us. That's the hand, the finger of God's happening. Jesus, when he was doing miracles, at one point he was accused of casting out by the power of Satan, right? And he rebukes. He says, this isn't by the power of Satan. He says, I'm doing this by the power of God. Actually, in Luke 11, here's what he says regarding that. If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice he points out the finger of God. Why does all this matter? Because biblically, whenever you see the finger of God, it represents the power and authority of God. It's something beyond us. I can't do it. That was bigger than me. That's what the Bible teaches us about the finger of God. Here's why this matters. When we were doing the Constitution... Alexander Hamilton talked about how did we pull this off? And let me just read you one part of a letter that he wrote explaining how they did the Constitution. For my own part, I sincerely esteem the Constitution system, which without the finger of God never could have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interests. Had God not helped, we never could have done that. James Madison, and by the way, notice the finger of God because that's that biblical idea that we learned this is beyond man, something God did. James Madison, talking the same thing about the Constitution, how do we pull this off? Here was James Madison's explanation. The real wonder that the Constitutional Convention overcame so many difficulties and to overcome them with so much agreement was as unprecedented as it was unexpected. Like, we didn't think this was ever going to happen. This was amazing to us, and he explains how it happened. It is impossible for the pious man not to recognize in it a finger of that almighty hand which was so frequently extended to us in the critical stages of the revolution. Not only does he recognize God helped him in the revolution, he says, without God's involvement, we never could have done the Constitution. Okay? Th this is significant because these are guys recognizing, like, this wasn't just us. This was bigger than us. We could not have pulled that off. Right? We had God's help. George Washington explains the same kind of thing. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because they talk about the finger of God. The finger of God sounds spiritual, but if you know the Bible, you recognize how significant that is. Because when the finger of God showed up, miracles happened. Something big happened. George Washington talking about the Constitution, again, about the hand of God in this, the finger of God. As to my sentiments with respect to the new Constitution, it appears to me little short of a miracle. It demonstrates as visibly the finger of providence as any possible event in the course of human affairs ever can designate. Again, the finger of providence is the finger of God. What's interesting is when you back up in history, it's not that you find perfect people, it's that you find imperfect people who recognize that God was intervening and doing something, right? And this was because they knew the Bible to even quote, no, this is the finger. Where did they come up with the idea the finger of God was power and did miracles? That's what the Bible teaches, right? I mean, you don't find that somewhere else. That's what the Bible teaches. And what's interesting is not just how the founding fathers were shaped by the Bible. It's interesting how the Bible shaped other aspects of culture. For example, one of my favorite examples is Reverend Harry Hoosier. The Reverend Harry Hoosier was born in 1750. He actually was born into slavery, except while he was a slave, there was a Methodist preacher who came along sharing the gospel. He heard it as a teenager and decided he wanted to give his life to Jesus. And he was so fired up, he started sharing the gospel with everybody that would listen. In fact, one day, his master listened, and his master got saved. 
And the master said, I'm going to set you free, but only if you promise you're going to go share the gospel with everybody else you can. So he got his freedom to go share the gospel. Well, he teamed up with the Reverend Francis Asbury during the Second Great Awakening. And they began going and sharing. And Francis Asbury said, look, the white people will listen to me, but a lot of the black people, a lot of the slaves, you need to go talk to them. And, and so that will work together. So I'll talk to the whites, you talk to the blacks. What happened is Francis Asbury would talk to the white crowd and then Harry Hoosier would talk, but a lot of the whites stayed and listened, and they said, he actually talks better than you. Next time, can he just talk to both of us? So Harry Hoosier began actually being the main guy at these crusades, and he talked to the white and black crowds, right, diversity of the group. In fact, what's interesting about this guy is Harry Hoosier was illiterate. He could not read or write. But he had somebody read the Bible to him, and he just memorized what they read to him from the Bible. So he quoted the Bible all the time, but it's because somebody had, like, this is really amazing, okay? So Benjamin Rush was a guy who signed the Declaration. He actually ratified the Constitution, served him the first three presidents. He knew every founding father. He knew Washington. He knew Hamilton and Madison. He knew Patrick Henry. He said, I've never heard a better speaker than the Reverend Harry Hoosier, okay? The Reverend Harry Hoosier, as he continues to want to witness and share the gospel, he decides he wants to go reach the people who have never heard the gospel. He wants to go out west. Now, in early America, when there were only 13 colonies, going to reach the wild guys out west looked different because you didn't have to go very far to get west, okay? Like, he didn't go very far. He actually ended up in the Indiana Territory. Now, if you know Indiana, Indiana has a specific name associated with their state, and they are known as the Hoosiers State. Okay, there's a reason, but we'll come to that in a second. Okay, so Harry Hoosier is going out. He's evangelizing people who've never heard the gospel, and these are rough frontiersmen. So as he's sharing the gospel, he's challenging them. You need to live different. You, you, you need to stop being the abusive alcoholics, right? Be, be the good husband, be the father. And they begin living their life differently, and their friends begin to look and notice they were different. And the friends who noticed somebody was different, they begin calling their friends Hoosiers because they had converted under Harry Hoosier. In fact, almost the entire state of Indiana became known as the Hoosier State because that's where Harry Hoosier spent so much of his life evangelizing. Now, here's what's significant, okay? This is an entire state named after a black preacher from the Second Great Awakening, okay? But this is the influence of Christianity and the Bible in America, Right? It's not, a, it's, it's not a story of perfect people doing perfect things. No, it's so imperfect, and yet it shows how God uses imperfect situations and does something great. Right? One of, one of my actually second favorite examples, but he might be my first, is John Morant. John Morant actually was born a free black in America. When he was six years old, his parents decided they wanted to educate him, but not just academically. They wanted him to be educated in the arts. When he was six years old, they bought him a violin. He began playing the violin as a six-year-old, and by the age of 11, he was being requested to come perform at all of the concerts where the rich people are, you know, throwing their parties. This 11-year-old was the one playing the violin for him. Well, when he was 13, he actually joined up, and they had a little band. They were traveling, and they were doing together. And so he's traveling, doing concerts. One day they were traveling, and he said that they were going by a field, and they heard this man out. He said, hallooing, yelling. He was yelling in the field. And so his friend, who was also a teenager, said, hey, you should take this horn as a trumpet. Go climb the tree behind the man and lean down and blow the trumpet in his ear. It'll be so funny. It's really dumb, but 13-year-olds are kind of dumb sometimes. So he got the trumpet, he climbs the tree, and he says, right as I took a breath to blow the horn, the man on the ground turned around and pointed at me. Now, it's worth noting at this point, the man on the ground was the Reverend George Whitfield. Okay? 
So he got up behind George Whitfield, who's the most famous evangelist at First Great Awakening, really, really famous guy. So George Whitfield turns around and sees him and points at the tree and says, prepare to meet thy maker. John Morant says, I just got paralyzed and I couldn't move and I started to slip and I couldn't move to grab myself. He says, I fell out of the tree and I hit my back on the ground. He says, but I really was like paralyzed. I couldn't move. So I had to stay there and just listen to his sermon. So he heard the whole sermon. At the end of the sermon, he said, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about the gospel. He spent the next week living with George Whitfield, being mentored by George Whitfield. George Whitfield says, I need to go. I've got to go continue to evangelize America. Why don't you stay behind? You can stay with this local minister. So he stays behind. While he does, he writes his family a letter. Says, Mom and Dad, you're never going to believe it. I was in the field. George Whitfield. I got saved. It's amazing. His parents weren't Christians. They wrote him a letter back. Says, if you're going to believe in Jesus, don't even bother coming home. Okay, now he's 13, and he's just told he can't come home. That's a traumatic event for anybody, but this is a 13-year-old. He says, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, one of the people he'd become friends with was actually a Cherokee Indian. And the Indian says, hey, why don't you come with me? I'll show you how to live in the woods. You can live off the land. Let me help you know how to survive. So he goes to live with this Indian. And what we know is they were in the woods for a couple weeks, and apparently they weren't quite as successful hunting, fishing, gathering, whatever, because the Indian says, uh, we should go back to my village. They eat better than we do. Let's go where there's more food. So they go to go back to the village, but as they get into the village, the chief actually sees them, and the chief says, you're not one of our tribe. We need to kill this guy. Well, as the chief is saying this, oh, back up. As the chief is saying this, his friend, and, and, and John Moran says, I didn't speak Cherokee at that time. He said, I, did, I didn't know the language. He says, my friend came over and was trying to plead that they would let me live. And, and, and the chief says, no, we're going to kill him. But the chief, through his friend, the interpreter, said, ask him if there's anything he wants to say before we kill him. So John Moran was asked, is there anything you want to say? He says, I don't know what happened because I had never spoken Cherokee before. But all of a sudden, I began to speak perfect Cherokee. I wasn't even really sure what I was saying, but at the end of me talking, the chief said to cut me loose, and he wanted to hear more about Jesus. He said, so I guess I was talking about Jesus. Well, he stays in the tribe and begins witnessing about Jesus. The chief actually gets saved and makes him a prince in the tribe, okay? And then the chief asks if he will go to all of the other tribes and share the gospel with them, except he says it might not be safe for you to go because they might look at you like we did. You're an outsider. They might want to put you to death. So I'm going to send 50 of my braves with you to be your personal bodyguard. Now, I just want to stop at that part of the story for a second, because that would be the coolest way to be a missionary ever, right? <laughs> if you give me 50 Navy SEALs, like I would actually just try to pick a fight to watch what happens, right? Like <laughs> Navy SEAL, awesome. Okay. Like legit, that's cool. Well, he stays with the Indians for several years, and then he decides he's going to go back home. Well, when he goes back home, his family has not seen him in years. So as he goes home, he's been living with the Indians. He actually said he had on the full Indian garb, buckskin. He had feathers in his hair. His face was painted. He went home, and he knocked on his door. He said, my mom opened the door, and she screamed and ran back. She thought a savage was about to attack her. Now, this is his words, okay? He, she thought a savage was about to attack her, and he walked in and was trying to talk to her. But he'd been speaking in Indian languages for so long that his English wasn't very good anymore. And so he's trying to explain, like, no, I'm your son. He had a little sister that ran over and hugged his leg. Says, John's home. Mom came over, grabbed the little sister, said, your brother's dead. Leave that man alone. 
Well, finally, he revealed, no, it's me. I, and he explained what had happened. Well, his family, who didn't believe in Christ, heard the whole story. He then begins witnessing his whole family get saved. What's amazing about John Morant, John Morant is the first successful missionary of a Native American tribe. And his whole testimony is written. This is his story. You actually can get on Google. You can read his whole story. It's only like 40 pages. It's a very fascinating read. But here's the point. Our nation was shaped and built by people that the Bible had influenced, right? Th this is what's so unique about our nation. It's not, that, it's not that our nation were perfect people, but let me just give you a thought from the Bible. See, one of the things that is a problem in America today is we don't know the Bible anymore, and God has given us a solution for every problem we deal with, right? This is where we should go. In fact, one of the things that, that God told Joshua as he was going to lead the Israelites into Canaan, he says, constantly think about my word every day and every night. You'll be sure to obey it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. What's interesting is the Bible teaches the key to prosperity and success is actually studying God's word and doing what it says. That's when you put yourself in a place that God can bless you, God can do something in your life. And, and this is what is so unique about our nation's history. It's not, again, it's not that we were perfect people, but God did something significant. In fact, if you want to know more about some of these stories, I'd encourage you to check out. We have a website, wallbuilders.com. Um, we have several resources and products available. In fact, we're all over social media. You can find stuff there. But, but let me close with one thought. As we look at our nation, it's easy for us to see imperfections in our nation, but this to me is one of the greatest things about the gospel. God has never looked for perfect people to use, ever. Right? Our nation is filled with so many imperfect people. Now, by the way, it's the history of all nations, okay? Let's not act like America's the weird one here. No, every nation's had problems, but what our nation did different than most nations is our nation had people that turned to God to find solutions. Every time there was a dark moment in our life, how did that dark moment get turned around? It was Christians who knew the Bible said, we got to put a stop to that. God is not looking for perfect people. He's looking for willing vessels. As we get ready to celebrate the 4th of July, we celebrate the freedom and, and the blessings, the abundance God's given us as Americans. But our question ought to be, God, how can you use me to make a difference? I want to be the one. God, use me, imperfect as I am. God, use me to make a difference because that's how this nation was built. And that's what this nation needs going forward. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear how this message ministered to you. Feel free to let us know on the Connect tab of the House Church app. We hope you have a great week.